Hi, welcome to the U.S. Tax Court Podcast. I'm Rick Thackrow, and as always, joined by my co-host, Lee Wilson. How's it going, Lee? Good, Rick. How you doing? Good. So this is actually kind of a special episode because we started this tax court podcast to do blocks of cases, and we decided to start off with these 10 procedural cases, and we've done five of them. And we're sort of taking a break here now, Lee, but before we take that break... Uh, we got our first viewer request, or I'm sorry, we got our first listener request. And so this is a request for us to do um, two tax court cases that were decided in the last few years. And that is Champ v. Commissioner and Olive v. Commissioner. And these are the marijuana dispensary cases that the tax courts dealt with. So the listener emailed us and asked us to do this. It's sort of a follow-up from... Weimer, Skirch, and Higby, where we had talked about drug-related cases before. And so it's actually kind of plays into what we've done. So, Yeah, no, it's definitely interesting. It, it, yeah, it, there is a little overlay there, a little overlap, I should say. and uh, But it's definitely a little off the, the normal path. But, you know, you know, hopefully it'll, it'll, uh, it'll be interesting to the listeners. And I mean, I sure, I certainly was interested. It was interesting to me, you know, as we went through it and, uh, you know, as I as I did some research on it, and uh, I'm sure you felt the same way. You know, it's not something we commonly see. So yeah, I, I mean, I I'll, I never see this. I didn't know anything about it until started researching it, especially because we don't have medical marijuana in the state of Florida. Um, sure. Yeah. I, I, yeah. Do you have it in Texas? I don't think no, you do. No, no, no. We don't have it here either. Pretty pretty conservative here. So. <laughs> yeah. Not- not to date, um, but, yeah. uh, you know. It's funny. We actually had a constitutional amendment in our last election, in the last midterm elections, but it didn't pass. So who knows? Maybe we'll have it in Florida one day in the future, and this will actually become relevant to my practice. But for now, it was just interesting nonetheless, you know, being yeah. a tax geek and liking this stuff. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, just one thing I'll note to any of our listeners who are, you know, more conservative on this issue uh, just, you know, doing the, doing the material here doesn't, you know, we don't either endorse or condemn any of this stuff. We're just, we find it interesting from a tax perspective and, you know, and a procedural perspective. And so, you know, just want to throw that out there. So, you know, we're yeah. not kind of on either side of the fence on this. It's, you know. Yep. Good point. And, um, actually, as we'll get into it, you'll sort of see that it is like purely tax driven and actually deals with all these pretty cool tax concepts. So, why don't we get into it? All right, let's do it. So dealing with these medical marijuana cases, I think the first place we should start, like we've done with so many other cases, is the history that sort of leads up to it and sort of give people a good understanding of how we got to where we got to in the tax court. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I guess I guess we, you know, uh, we'd, we'd start there with, uh, you know, I guess we could start there looking at... Uh, Looking at the Constitution a little bit, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. Why don't you kick it off? Why don't you right. uh, get a start on that? Okay, okay. So, uh, you know, everything, you know, not everything, but I guess you know, a good place to start is always the Constitution, and you know, and in this case, you know, relevant here, you know, we've got the Supremacy Clause. Uh, that's that's Article Article Six, Clause Two, and it essentially, you know, it, it basically, as a lot of our listeners know. Basically, the supremacy clause says that any state law that conflicts with a federal law, uh, you know, on the same substantive matter, is preempted by the federal law. So, um, you know, as Rick mentioned, neither Texas or Florida have, uh, you know, medical marijuana legalized uh, at this point. But there are 23 states and the District District of Columbia that do, um, and there's also four states uh, that, that where legal where recreational use of marijuana is legalized. Uh, to date, so um, that's kind of where we are from a from a snapshot standpoint as far as the status uh, and kind of where you know where we start here on the uh, supremacy clause. But then, you know, as we kind of move into it, um, we also have federal legislation on the issue. Rick, you want to talk about that? Yeah. So, uh, like you said, Lee, we have some states that have legalized medical marijuana and a few that have legalize recreational marijuana. And so where the supremacy clause really comes in here is we have federal law that still considers marijuana to be a controlled substance and thus illegal. 
And so that is actually 21 USC section 812, schedule 1 C10. So why is this important for a US tax court podcast? Well, it's because the tax code deals with controlled substances. So we have IRC section 280 cap E, which states that no deduction or credit shall be allowed for any amount paid or incurred during the taxable year in carrying on any trade or business if such trade or business consists of trafficking in controlled substances within the meaning of Schedule 1 and 2 of the Controlled Substances Act, which is prohibited by federal law or the law of any state in which such trade or business is conducted. So what does that mean? If you run a illegal drug business, Section 280E won't allow you to take any trade or business expenses associated with your trafficking of those controlled substances and your illegal drug business. Illegal under federal law, that is. Because, like we talked about, some states allow you to traffic or dispense medical marijuana or recreational marijuana. But we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves here, Lee. Um, Let's start from the beginning. So why don't you kick us off on how the federal income tax law treats legal businesses, illegal businesses, et cetera? Sure, sure. And, and real quick, as 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 Rick pointed out, that in the in the 280E language, the Controlled Substances Act is just the same. Is this is 21 U.S.C. Section 812? It's what Rick mentioned earlier. Um, just just for clarification for our listeners, but uh, so federal income tax law treats legal and illegal businesses all the same way, right? It's not a, it's, it's, it's there to essentially, you know, determine how income is taxed, uh, from businesses, individuals, etc. It doesn't really make too many, uh, too much differentiation. It doesn't really operate to make too much of a distinction between, you know, either or in this case. So no real moral judgments, right? Yeah. 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 And that's a good way to put it. There's no real moral judgments. Um, although, know these days we, we, we could say that maybe uh, behind the scenes there are but <laughs> but anyway um, uh, section 61 of the uh, of the uh, internal revenue code states that gross income includes income from whatever source derived anybody who practices in tax took their first tax class it's probably the first statute they read uh, or were assigned and you know, that, that income, so gross income includes income from whatever source derived, and that includes income from illegal activities, legal activities, whatever. Um, we discussed that a little bit uh, uh, in the Weimer Skirch uh, case, when we talked about that case uh, last week. So um, uh, to get a little more into that, um, Rick, you know, we've got some case law. Uh, and do you want to talk a little bit about the case law that you know has some some interesting some interesting uh, pieces to it that kind of fit into what we're talking about? Yeah, sure. So we actually have a case from 1966. The case is Commissioner v. Tellier, and the site on that is 383 U.S. 687. So as you can tell from the quote, I mean from the site, it's a U.S. Supreme Court case. And there's actually two quotes that I love from this case, which sort of kind of explain it all. So I'm just going to give you the quotes. So when discussing Section 61, the Supreme Court says, One familiar facet of the principle is the truism that the statute does not concern itself with the lawfulness of the income that it taxes. And another quote that I really like from this case is, The fact that a business is unlawful does not exempt it from paying the taxes that if lawful it would have it would have to pay. And so basically you can see from this case and these quotes that the Internal Revenue Code is not concerned with moral objections to how you made your money, etc. It just wants to get its piece of the action. It wants to tax any income, whether from illegal sources or illegal sources. And that's Actually, kind of one of the cool things I like about the tax law, how it's, you know, it doesn't get wrapped up in all these moral issues. Although, as we'll see later on, it sometimes does. But anyway, that that was uh, the U.S. Supreme Court case that basically says illegal income subject to the same taxes as um, legal income. 
Yeah, and you know that same the same same general principle you talked about, uh, you know, with in, if, that you pull from those quotes, Rick. You know, goes for deductions, right? And the and the one that's relevant to us today is is two eighty cat b. Um, so to kind of to kind of start here, so we're going to kind of walk along. The, the well, path. Lee, just to clarify oh. that two eighty cat b is sort of an exception to you know that general rule that deductions are treated the same as income. They don't really judge whether the income's legal or legal. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for clarifying that. Yeah, that's actually that's what I meant to say was it's kind of an exception to that general that general principle. So yeah, my my fault there. Um, so yeah, it is an exception to that general principle. Um, but to, to kind of start here, uh, let's kind of walk through kind of how we get to the whole, you know, what what you know what what authorizes the taxation of you know the income and and then. How, where do we start to look at, you know, whether something's deductible or not? And we'll kind of walk walk along there. So um, generally, it's it's IRC Section 62 that allows businesses, you know, both illegal uh, and legal to deduct uh, to deduct expenses. And and what we're talking about here when we say deduct expenses, Section 62 authorizes the deduction expenses, right? It's of, of expenses. It's right after you know authorizing the taxation of income under IRC 61. But it's talking about 160 IRC 162, you know, trader business expenses, you know, uh, you know, spent in the ordinary course, all that kind of stuff. So, um, you know, and, and there's a case, you know, kind of on point here that, you know, that kind of goes to back to that, you know, Section 62 allowing illegal or illegal businesses to take deductions. Commissioner B. Sullivan, and the site for our listeners on that is 356 U.S. 27. It's a 1958 Supreme Court decision. Uh, and in that decision, uh, the court allowed an illegal gambling enterprise, uh, it was illegal under the state law in which it was located, to deduct wages and rent expenses. Um, and it based the decision on IRC 62, etc. And actually, Lee, as a side note, there was a discussion in the original 1913 legislation, which, you know, is the first real tax code, the IRC of 1913. To only allow legitimate legal businesses to deduct expenses, but there was a senator, Senator Williams, who made an eloquent statement on the House floor stating that that's not the purpose of the tax code, that's for other laws to deal with. But we won't really get into that, but that you know, somewhat goes back to that whole tax code doesn't judge, we just want our income um, so, tax. So essentially, right, I mean, what we're, what we're, kind, of, what we're kind of the takeaway here is, you know, Forms many forms of businesses all across the all across the spectrum, illegal and illegal, get to take trade or business expenses. Uh, generally speaking, right, whether it's a gambling ring, a prostitution ring, uh, an illegal arms dealer, uh, yeah. something like that, right? I mean, anything like that, it's 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 not treated any differently, right? That's kind of what the takeaway is. Yeah, and even illegal narcotics until the enactment of 280E, which is the big thing we're talking about today. Okay. And so, Lee, there's a number of deductions that are disallowed for many reasons, including like judicially created public policy, you know, doctrine that has now been codified. Um, you'll see that in Section 162, where illegal bribes are not allowed to be deducted, you know, the cost of illegal bribes. But for purposes of this discussion, we're not going to get into, you know, all those exceptions. We're just going to focus on 280E. And so I think what helps is a little bit of history behind 280. So 280 was enacted in response to a tax court case called Edmondson v. Commissioner, in which the tax court allowed a taxpayer to deduct various expenses associated with the sale of illegal drugs. And these expenses included the cost of goods sold, Telephone and automobile expenses, um, and these are all ordinary trade or business expenses. The court had found they were ordinary trade or ordinary and necessary trade or business expenses. And the court actually also gave a home office deduction um, in this case. So Congress, seeing that, decided to act and enacted Section 280E. Congress didn't think that trade or business expenses from the sale of drugs should be allowed under the tax code. So whereas previously we hadn't, you know, judged anything on a moral basis, et cetera, now we are. But notably, uh, what's important about 280 is it does not cover cost of goods sold. And this was 
to avoid a constitutional challenge to the statute. And so that's actually really interestingly. And so why don't we go into that? Why don't you explain why that is? Sure, Rick. So the U.S. Constitution originally prohibited any direct tax unless it was a portion among the states according to their relative population. Uh, so we get to the 16th Amendment to the Constitution, which allows the federal government to tax income from whatever source derived. You remember that language. It's, it's in the tax code. Um, uh, so it allows, the 16th Amendment allows the federal government to tax income without apportionment among the several states and without regard to any of their, you know, without regard to their population, essentially. Um, so the important part here is that income can be taxed. It doesn't have to be a direct tax, you know, so that's where we are. Um, but, you know, what actually is income? Well, like we said before, we know Section 61 of the Code defines gross income as, again, famous quote, any income or income from whatever source derived. But actually, it's the it's the, re- the, the Treasury regulations that define what income really is. And, and tre- Treasury Regulation 1.61-3a states that gross income means the total sales less the cost of goods sold. So by disallowing costs of goods sold, the government would essentially be taxing more than income, more than more than income as it's defined, as we just discussed. Um, so, and if they did that, that could potentially provide some constitutional challenges uh, to the to the statute if it was, you know, taxing more than income. So, uh, thus, 280E exempts costs of goods sold. It doesn't apply to costs of goods sold. It, it simply applies to ordinary, necessary business expenses. Uh, so that's pretty interesting. That's a pretty interesting little uh, little bit on kind of the history, I think. And um, yeah, uh, I, I, you know that I never would have known that if I didn't go and you know do the background for these cases. I had no idea that you know cost of goods sold was that important in the definition of income when it comes to you know deductions. And you know, one thing I wanted to point out, Rick, was some some of the legislative history. There's just a, a quick quote I pulled out. Um, and it, it actually says for 280E, it actually says, quote, to preclude possible challenges on constitutional grounds, the adjustment to gross receipts with respect to effective cost of goods sold is not affected by this provision of the act, end quote. So, yeah. You know, kind of, kind of shows their concern and their awareness that that could, you know, present some issues if they weren't to, weren't, weren't to carve out cost of goods sold. Yeah. So, yeah. And so that actually uh, leads us into ordinary necessary trade or business expenses, which, as we all know, are a matter of legislative grace. If you've ever read a tax court case on substantiation or anything like that, you always have that quote in there, right? Deductions are a matter of legislative grace. And so this is completely different from the cost of goods sold. And Congress was able to make these ordinary necessary trade or business expenses subject to 280E. So that actually sort of leads us into what are trade or business expenses? What is What are ordinary necessary trade or business expenses? And without going into too much detail in, into this, most of us just intuitively know what these are, right? A few examples are like rent, telephone service, salaries, etc., and so what 280E has done is it's disallowed these expenses if they are conducted in a trade or business of selling illegal drugs. And as we know, the federal government says that the sale of marijuana is an illegal drug, even though the state of California says that the sale of medicinal marijuana is not illegal. And that brings us to our first tax court case and why this is relevant to the U.S. Tax Court podcast, Champ v. Commissioner. So Champ v. Commissioner, uh, the site on that for our listeners is 128 TC 173, and it's a 2002 decision. Um, so Champ, you know, is a uh, is actually an acronym that stands for Californians Helping to Alleviate Medical Problems, Inc. Uh, it was a California not-for-profit corporation, but it didn't have federal tax-exempt status. It operated as approximately a, a break-even community center for its members with uh, debilitating diseases and, and conditions. Uh, about Actually, about 47%, about almost half of its members had AIDS, and the rest of them suffered from cancer, uh, MS, and other serious illnesses and issues. And, um, and it was actually, Champ was located in the San Francisco area, uh, just, just for 
for uh, for edification. Um, prior to the prior to joining Champ and and starting Champ, the executive director of it uh, actually had 13 years of experience uh, in, in as a health services coordinator for a statewide program that trained outreach workers in AIDS prevention work. So CHAMP actually operated with two purposes. Its primary purpose was to provide caregiving services to its members, uh, and secondary, secondarily to provide its members with medical marijuana. Of course, that's what its purposes were, according to CHAMP. Um, each member of CHAMP paid them a membership fee, which entitled them to caregiving services and medical marijuana. Now, I won't get into this here. We'll talk about it later. But interestingly, um, as I said, they paid one membership fee. They didn't. They didn't. It wasn't a separate membership fee for one or the other, which is interesting and in, 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 for some purposes of our case. And I'll bring that up later. Um, so important to the case was Petitioner Champ's caregiving services, which the court noted were extensive in its opinion. Uh, Champ offered its members weekly support group meetings. There was a wellness group, an HIV/AIDS group. You know, we talked about before half the members had AIDS. Uh, there was a woman's group that focused on women's issues, uh, the so-called Phoenix group, which helped elderly patients with lifelong addiction problems, the Force group, which uh, evidently focused on spiritual and emotional development. Uh, you know, further, there was Champ provided its low-income members with daily lunches, hygiene supplies, and also provided you know members with one-on-one consults with its counselors to talk about housing, health, safety, legal issues, etc. They also provided massage services, coordinated weekly social events, Friday night movies, guest speakers, live music, etc. Uh, they also took members on monthly field trips to the beach, museums, parks. Uh, there were also yoga classes and online computer access. Uh, Champ encouraged their members to participate in political activities. So, so as you can see, and as the court discusses a lot in its opinion, the caregiving service aspect, right, the so-called primary focus, was extensive here. Um, all of these services were provided at Petitioner's main facility in San Francisco, with the exception of these peer group meetings and yoga classes we talked about before that were actually held at a community church in San Francisco. Um, the main facility was uh, about 1,350 square feet, and about 10% of that facility was actually used. There was a counter area that was used to dispense the medical marijuana. Um, Members were specifically barred from bringing that marijuana to the church for the for the yoga classes or the peer group meetings, uh, because the church prohibited it. And petitioner also actually had a storage unit, so a third facility where medical records uh, of its members were stored. Um, and no marijuana was distributed or used at that at that facility. Um, and as I mentioned before, the membership fee charged to the mar- to the members covered the cost of the caregiving services and a specified amount of marijuana. Again, it was not bifurcated. It was one single fee. So, Rick, um, you want to kind of pick up here and, and kind of talk about, you know, I, I talked about the facts. You want to kind of get into the to the, uh, to the the deeper aspects here? Sure. Um, so, basically, what you had here was in 2002, Champ uh, Board of Directors decided to cease operations. And so, it filed a final corporate in- income tax return. Uh, with the IRS, and the IRS audited the return and issued Champ a notice of deficiency, disallowing all of Champ's deductions and cost of goods sold, determining that these items were expenditures in the connection with illegal sale of drugs within the meaning of Section 280E. And so before it actually got to trial, respondent conceded the cost of goods sold, and uh, as we know from our previous discussion there, they really had no choice in that, right? But still, they disallowed all the other deductions. But what they did do with all the other deductions is respondent conceded that all these other deductions were substantiated. So all these deductions that respondent denied were ordinary, necessary, and reasonable expenses incurred in Champs running its operations in 2002. They were basically trade or business expenses. And the specific expenses are listed in the case, and they're pretty numerous, so we won't go into all of them specifically, because you can just read the case to see what they all are and the amounts. But some of the deductions included salaries and wages, repair and maintenance expenses, rent, payroll taxes, depreciation, etc. There were a lot of expenses that were denied. Everything was basically denied. 
So this sort of brings us to the main issue in the case. Respondent argued that petitioner had a single trade or business, that it was the trade or business of trafficking in medical marijuana, in a controlled substance. Thus, all of its deductions were precluded by Section 280E. Now, petitioner argued that it had two separate trades or businesses. Its primary trade or business, as Lee had mentioned, was providing caregiving services. And its second trade or business was supplying medical marijuana. And this was, once again, the petitioner's interpretation of their own business. And so the petitioner argued that 280E did not preclude any deductions from its primary trade or business because its primary trade or business, that of caregiving services, did not involve the trafficking of a controlled substance. Um, Real quick, um, just just for our listeners, uh, you know, this term, you know, trafficking, right? It's not essentially, you know, because trafficking, I think, you know, those of us who watch, you know, shows on CNBC or whatever. I mean, Breaking Bad, about, maybe. Yeah, we think about trafficking, just like massive quantities of for profit, horrible, you know, all that kind of stuff. I mean, cartels and all that. But, I mean, for our listeners, right, trafficking is essentially, even in a case like this, right, it, it, it it's met by simply providing these drugs to anybody. It doesn't have to be some big arrangement. Is that... Is that fair to say? Yeah, and and they went into that in the case, and it's yeah. good you brought that up. I sort of skimmed over that, but yeah, a trafficking can really be anything from a low level, you know, guy just dispensing marijuana at a medical dispensary to the growers all the way at the top to in the legal, you know, drug business, the kingpin in Mexico, Colombia, whatever, to the street runner in you know the corners, standing on the corner. So you don't have to have an army. So just you don't have to have an army of drug mules crossing the border, all like backpacked up or anything like that to yeah to to to, to meet the traffic. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Just just wanted to clarify. All right. Yeah. Um. So really quickly, as you all know, you can deduct the ordinary and necessary expenses incurred in a trade or business. That's section 162. All tax lawyers know that. However, Section 261 denies that deduction in certain cases, including the trafficking of controlled substances, and that is specified in Section 280E. So Section 162 basically references 280E. And as we've discussed before, marijuana is a controlled substance for purposes of Section 280E. So the whole argument by a respondent is that 280E precludes any deduction of any expenses by petitioner because it trafficked in controlled substances, even if the petitioner had two separate trades or businesses. And now the court specifically disagreed with this. So um, how'd the court get here, Lee? Why don't you talk about you know how the court went through its reasoning? Sure. So... The, the the court started by looking at the specific text of 280E in the legislative history, right? Always a, a, a fair place to start is the actual language of the statute. Um, and as we mentioned, 280E was enacted in response to Edmondson, Edmondson v. Commissioner, in which the tax court allowed a taxpayer to deduct expenses incurred in the legal drug trade. And the, the, for your our listeners, the, the, the site on that case is TC Memo 1981-623. Um, for that Edmondson case. Uh, the court noted that, uh, and this is a quote actually, Section 280E and its legislative history expressed a congressional intent to disallow deductions attributable to a trader business of trafficking of controlled substances. They do not express an intent to deny the deduction of all of a taxpayer's business expenses simply because the taxpayer was involved in trafficking a, control, a controlled substance. So, so essentially the court held that Section 280E doesn't preclude the taxpayer from deducting expenses from a trader business other than that of illegal trafficking and controlled substances, right? So it's a, the court looks at it uh, as a business to business type of, of, of approach. They don't, they don't look at it taxpayer by taxpayer and, and being in, in one illegal trader business doesn't taint the taxpayer, so to speak, with regards to all of its other trader businesses. So, so the court, then they analyzed whether the uh, whether Champs Caregiving Services were a separate trader business from its trader business of providing medical marijuana. Um, 
and the court had previously recognized that a taxpayer could be involved in more than one trader trader business. And actually, the, the Treasury regulations state uh, that you know whether an activity is a trader business is actually a question of fact that depends on, among other things, the degree of economic interrelationship between uh, you know multiple undertakings. And that, that's actually uh, the site on that regulation is 1.183-1 little d one. Um, and the regs also state that the commissioner generally accepts a taxpayer's characterization of two or more undertakings as being separate activities, unless that characterization is artificial or unreasonable. Um, so here, the court found that the activities of Champ were actually separate and that such characterization wasn't artificial or unreasonable. And so that really goes to the facts. And you had all these services that were separate and distinct from the dispensing of medical marijuana by Champ in this case. Uh, the socials and the discussion groups and, and the yoga classes and all that, they, they had nothing to do with dispensing medical marijuana. And, um, and so, you know, Rick, why don't you get a little bit into kind of the evidence that, you know, I talked about what they found, but why don't you get a little bit into the evidence that they, they, they looked at here to make these determinations? Uh, sure. Well, the majority of the evidence was actually, I mean, uh, you know, all the substantiating evidence was introduced for these expenses. But what the court really relied heavily on was the petitioner's executive director's testimony. So this is the guy that Lee mentioned previously who had had 13 years of prior experience in health-related fields. And he got up on the stand and said that the primary purpose of this organization of CHAMP uh, was to care for terminally ill members. And that they, you know, only secondarily offered medical marijuana to these terminally ill patients or members. And so the court stated in the opinion that they found his testimony to be very credible and they relied heavily on it. The IRS, of course, argued that petitioner's principal purpose was to provide access to marijuana and that all of petitioner's other activities were merely incidental to that activity of trafficking marijuana. So you really have, you know, the IRS's bold assertion versus the testimony of, you know, the director of this company, of this non-for-profit. And so in the case, the tax court quotes Supreme Court from a case which is Commissioner v. Heininger, and that's 320 U.S. 467. It's a 1943 case. And I really love this quote, so I'm going to give it to you. And it's, quote, It has never been thought that the mere fact that an expenditure bears a remote relation to an illegal act makes it non-deductible. Uh, so basically, the court says there that, yeah, sure, they dispensed medical marijuana, but that doesn't taint everything else that they did. So given that petitioner had two trades or businesses, the court apportioned its overall expenses accordingly. And so, Lee, I don't think we should go into the specifics of that apportionment. It gets, you know, pretty gnarly. But suffice to say that a majority of the expenses were related to the caregiving services, as you can surmise from the facts where they have all these, like, really in-depth caregiving services and so Champ actually got to deduct a majority of these expenses that were disallowed. And that's basically Champ v. Commissioner. Uh, and so, Lee, that actually now leads us into Olive v. Commissioner, which is the most recent and second tax court case that deals with medical marijuana dispensaries. So, yeah. um, oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no. Um... Yeah, Rick. So the Olive case that you just mentioned, it, it was interesting. You know, it, it was it was uh, it was a decision that was a few years after the Champ case, uh, another another California case, um, and uh, it, essentially you, you had a case here where you had a marijuana dispensary called the Vapor Room, right? That um, basically, you know, as well as you'll see, essentially looked like it kind of patterned its structure in a loose way on you know the lessons from champ but kind of it, it was obvious that they did it in a way that you know wasn't sufficient so let's get into that a little well bit. Um, actually, actually lee and let me comment on what you said there i i think the realities of the matter are they didn't structure their company their you know their entity 
or I guess it wasn't an entity, it was a sole proprietorship, but it wasn't structured the way Champ was in practice. But what they tried to do was, you know, uh, in hindsight, uh, in tax court, try and make it so that it was structured the way that Champ was, right? Yeah, that, yeah, that, yeah, and that's a good point. That's kind of what I was, what I, what I guess I, what I meant to say was, you know, it was something where they tried to frame their argument to fit into the Champ puzzle, so to speak, but. It, you know, practically, like you said, it really didn't fit when you got down to it, right? Yeah. So it didn't really fit. So, um, so, so anyway, so, uh, in the, in the case, you know, you had a, a, uh, a medical marijuana dispensary in Northern California called the Vapor Room. And, um, in that case, the petitioner, you know, the Olive, uh, stated that the Vapor Room's overwhelming purpose was to provide, quote, caregiving services. And that the vapor room's expenses are almost entirely related to those caregiving services and the vapor room will continue to operate even if the petitioner didn't, even if, you know, the vapor room didn't sell the medical marijuana. And, um, and, and Lee, this is actually really interesting, uh, just from the facts. I thought this was really interesting. The way this vapor room came to be about the petitioner, Martin Olive, was a college kid. I believe he was in his second year of college. And volunteered at a different medical marijuana dispensary and basically saw that, wow, this is sort of profitable and this is sort of easy to do. Found some cheap space in a bad neighborhood, according to the court, and decided to rent that cheap space and um, start the vapor room and drop out of college. I just thought that was kind of funny. He uh, dropped out of college to deal marijuana. Uh, we're not endorsing that, listeners. Um, in fact, we probably endorse the opposite. Lee and I went through college and actually went to grad school, et cetera. So staying school, kids. <laughs> right. Yeah, I got to think anyone listening to this probably probably did. <laughs> so, <laughs> anyway, um, so kind of back to it. Uh, so in analyzing uh, in analyzing the facts here, the court kind of they they kind of took an approach where they distinguished all of you know from from Champ and they and they. You know, they, um, they, they, back in Champ, as we talked about, they held that the dispensary was, or they held that the dispensary in Champ was operated exclusively for charitable, educational, scientific purposes, and, and, and they noted that its income was, was slightly less than, than, than its expenses, right? It didn't make a lot of money. Yeah. Um, and like, like you just recently noted, Rick, the director there, uh, who, you know, his expert testimony was, or his, excuse me, his testimony was huge and, and the sole, you know, kind of the sole evidence or the, the main evidence in the case that the court relied on. The director there was well experienced in health services and, and he operated the dispensary, uh, with, with caregiving as the primary feature. And he had all those services, et cetera. And, and kind of the dispensary of medical marijuana was a secondary feature of, of, of champ. But, um, you know, here in this case, uh, it, it was different, right? I mean, it, uh, it, it had a situation where we had a situation in the vapor room where it was very clear that its primary purpose was the dispensing of medical marijuana. Um, it, so the the court looked at it and they 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 kind of determined that the additional services that that were provided here by the vapor room, uh, as contrasted with what happened in Champ. They were really secondary and incidental to the medical marijuana business, right? So- yeah. And, and Lee, I think a good way of looking at it is the court sort of looked at Champ as the model for how it should be done. So now let's compare the vapor room to Champ. And if it stacks up, then yeah, you can get the same kind of deductions that Champ got. But if it doesn't stack up, well, yeah, you're not going to get them. Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. No, you're right. And it's clear that, you know, that uh, Olive's attorneys knew that Champ was the model, and they they tried to kind of fit their arguments accordingly. But um, so you know, what the court looked at, you know, they look and, and they kind of making this determination. One thing they noted, they they looked at, you know, the they looked at how kind of the employees were used in both businesses, right? In Champ, you know, like over seventy percent of the employees of Champ worked actually exclusively on the caregiving side, whereas in the vapor room, um, all the employees we're already in the dispensary helping helping the patrons receive and consume the, the medical marijuana, and and so and, and the entire site of the vapor room was used for that purpose, right? There was no separate facility type of situation. Everything and anything they did was in that 
in that structure in that building, and so there was no really separate. There was no real separation. Uh, so that you know, in, in trying to argue that there was this primary line of business and this secondary line of business, there really wasn't any. You know, from structurally, there wasn't really any difference between the two where 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 the quote services were provided, right? So um, yeah, and one of the big things the co- the court noted there, Lee, was that no additional payments were provided for incidental services. So like in Champ, they paid rent expense to the church so that they could hold the yoga classes and, um, you know, group meetings there. Here, uh, you didn't have that, right? Every every expense was paid for the medical marijuana, essentially. Yeah, and, uh, and, and just yeah. the same, all the revenue was derived from medical marijuana. Yeah, right? so why don't you talk about that? Talk about how they derived um, revenues in this case versus champ. So the vapor room, you know, they didn't they wouldn't have had actually any revenue but for the sale of their medical marijuana. Um they they didn't they didn't they didn't charge for all these secondary services really directly, etc. There wasn't any sort of like a champ there was this this blended this single membership fee that covered everything that we that we mentioned earlier here. Their their sole source of revenue was the medical marijuana sales and and the, what the court looked at they, they essentially looked at that and, you know, based on all these other things we've talked about, they, they said that they've kind of, they found that they didn't, the vape room didn't just spawn a second business line. They didn't, they didn't create a second business line just by providing some snacks and a massage or a movie here and there or, you know, by allowing these patrons who were already in the building to buy medical marijuana to kind of hang out and do, you know, little things here and there, play games, talk to each other, etc. That wasn't a second line of business. That wasn't a separate and distinct line of business uh, for the vapor room. So yeah, and um, and I think a big key point there is in Champ, you had the membership fee, which someone could have used Champ's facilities just for the caregiving services and never taken any medical marijuana. And same membership fee. Here, they only made money by selling marijuana. So. I'll buy X amount of marijuana, and so it's X amount of dollars. Whereas in Champ, it wasn't like that, right? You got, you just got marijuana by being there a certain amount. It wasn't based on the quantity you consumed, etc. Um, so this this is starting to feel more like, a, you know, an arm's length exchange of, you know, marijuana for money. Very similar to an actual, you know, sale of drugs, sale of anything, really. Um, I think that was a big issue. A, a fun, uh, uh, something that I really like that the court noted was even the differences in the names of the two companies, right? You had one company called the Vapor Room, which really stresses the sale and consumption of marijuana. And the other one is called Californians Helping to Alleviate Medical Problems, which actually really stresses the caregiving nature of um, the company. Right, right. And, and, and to that point, you know, and a couple other things uh, that the court looked at, um, you know, whereas in Champ, we had this this witness, you know, the, the who had all this experience and caregiving and came in and started this business, you know, and his testimony was very credible. Here we had um, we had Olive's lawyers, you know, asking Olive's patrons, patrons who testified as witnesses to describe these caregiving services and the witnesses kind of, you know, strain to come up with with any real answers um, other than what sounded like really rehearsed kind of canned uh, responses. So there was a lack of credibility there. But back to your point, uh, the court even talked about the tax returns for Vapor Room where, you know, you you know, on the tax return, you list your principal business and it was the retail sale of, quote, herbal um, so yeah, I mean, you know, which the court obviously discerned to mean marijuana. So there was just there was a lot of factors here, and it just looked like the court viewed all of his claims of this separate, you know, these two separate businesses trying to get the benefit of these deductions uh, as sort of an after the fact attempt to essentially, you know, like we talked about before, put it put itself into the into a champ costume. You know, I mean, more, more or less, where you know it didn't really fit, right? It, it wasn't the right size. It didn't. It didn't. It didn't really work. You know, it was just sort of an after the fact, artificially crafted, you know, holding. Um, yeah, yeah, I think that's right. And and it's we're making it seem as if 
Olive, the petitioner, completely failed here in tax court. But that's actually not true. Uh, why this case is important, building on Champ, is really under the cost of goods sold issue. So basically what you had was, as we've discussed, the IRS has to allow you cost of goods sold. That's you know not part of 280E. It can't be disallowed under 280E. But in order to get cost of goods sold, uh, you need to be able to substantiate it, right? Um, you need to be able to show that you had these costs. Well, as you can probably imagine, Mr. Olive did not keep the best records. They were pretty sparse and limited and didn't really substantiate cost of goods sold very well. And so there was a fight over what the amount of cost of goods sold was. And so to substantiate his cost of goods sold, the petitioner introduced expert witnesses um, to testify at trial about the medical marijuana industry and you know what the average cost of goods sold in the medical marijuana industry is. And so the court basically heard this testimony of their experts, and uh, the court deemed these experts to be qualified and actually relied on their testimony. One of the experts opined that the average cost of goods sold of three of his medical marijuana dispensary clients was 75.16% of their sales for the tax year 2005. And... That part of the opinion sort of comported with Olive's other experts who had said uh, that it ranged in that 70 to 85% range at, during the years at issue. So the court allowed Martin Olive, the petitioner, cost of goods sold to be estimated based on this industry average of 75.16% of sales was a reasonable measure of cost of goods sold. So that's, that's really pretty significant here, right? Because ordinarily, this guy would have got nothing. Terrible records, hadn't substantiated crap. But the court allowed these expert test, this expert testimony and relied on this expert testimony and basically established this almost industry average of around 75%, right? At least for these years in issue, who knows what it would be in other years. But, um, you know, you can really get a lot of deductions out of cost of goods sold by having really good expert testimony proving your cost of goods sold. And it almost seems like it's more of an advantage to have terrible records and a great expert as opposed to better records and a bad expert. I, I don't know. I, I mean, who knows what his, if he had kept real records, um, if he had gotten more than that 75% or not. But yeah. Who yeah. Who knows? Yeah, you're right. But that 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 does seem like a as someone who's not very familiar with the business uh, at all, I, I, I th that does seem like a healthy percentage. And so um, it's interesting, you know, that. Uh, yeah, that, I mean uh, that's that's a 25 percent margin. That's that's a pretty low margin, I would think. Just sort of watching stuff like Breaking Bad, <laughs> but. Who knows? Yeah. Well, no. Yeah, and I mean, I guess it just just to think it all goes to cost of goods sold. It, it's nevertheless, it's interesting, right? And it's interesting that they allowed it because usually that stuff has to be substantiated, and you know, I guess the the court seemed like it, you know, has. You well, know, they use the Cohen uh, rule, right? Yeah. Uh, we haven't gone into the Cohen rule so far in these podcasts, but anyone that practices in tax court knows the Cohen rule. Lee, real quickly, give give the people, um, give the listeners a quick recap of the Cohen rule. So the Cohen rule essentially just is basically, uh, it allows the court to, to accept reasonable estimates even without, even without substantiation, uh, of, of, of expenses, et cetera, for a taxpayer, even if they don't have, you know, records of everything because it, it operates on, on essentially a, a presumption or an assumption, whatever you want to call it, that in order to do business, you incur costs. And so if you do business, you incur costs, you obviously incur them. Even if you don't have great records, they're going to give you some leeway there uh, in, in as far as being able to take reasonable expenses for, you know, against your taxable income or against your income rather. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. That So, um, so that basically, you know, that was Olive. That's, those were the big parts of Olive. Uh, there's not much more there, 
But one of the big parts, I guess, of all of it, one of the big things that have happened out of these cases is what we've learned is that uh, trade or business expenses associated with the sale of medical marijuana or recreational marijuana in those other four states, not allowed, but cost of goods sold are allowed, right? So um, you sort of have this tension of expenses versus capitalization. And this is interestingly, uh, why don't you quickly uh, talk about that? Sure. So, Rick, I mean, obviously, for our listeners who know a little bit about that, right, it kind of defies conventional wisdom, right? We, I mean, mo- in most cases, you would rather have, rather than capitalizing something, um, you would always rather have it uh, something that you can deduct currently, and therefore, you, you know, you love 162 deductions. Well, if you're not allowed 162 deductions, um, but you are allowed cost of goods sold, well, it creates a lot of incentives for people in this line of business to, let's say, artfully craft ways to fit things that otherwise should be capitalized, uh, you know, or otherwise, you know, would be deductible, would be 162 current deductible expenses, kind of mold them into things, you know, into that. Capitalize them into the cost of goods sold. Capitalize them into the cost of goods sold, right. So it's different because most of the time you want it the opposite way for everybody else. Yeah, and so the interesting part about this, right, is you have decades of the IRS litigating and arguing that various expenses should be capitalized because it was unfavorable to the petitioner, to the taxpayer, right? And so you have all this case law, all this history of IRS arguments supporting capitalization. And now the roles are flipped and now the taxpayer wants to support capitalization and the IRS has to probably do a 180 and now argue for expense treatment. And I wonder how the IRS is going to, you know, do that in court when they've spent decades arguing the exact opposite way. Yeah, no, it's definitely interesting. Um, it, <laughs> it is very interesting. And so, you know, who says, who says tax can't be interesting and provide, uh, you know, some suspense, right? Cause I'm, I'm kind of interested to see as this develops further. You know, what's going to come out and how are they going to adjust their positions on some of these things? Yeah. So, and who knows? This could be relevant for a very long time or could be relevant for not a long time if you, we get a change in the federal law, right? Sure. I mean, this whole thing goes back to the fact that there is a split between state law and federal law and the whole supremacy clause issue. Yeah. You know, absolutely. And as our, some of our listeners know, you know, that's with the case of these. You know, some of these cases legalizing, you know, some of these states that have legalized marijuana completely so far, you, you essentially got a cooperative uh, executive branch, right? You've got a president that, you know, won't, you know, doesn't really want to enforce the federal law in these states that prohibit the use of these drugs. So, you know, that, but that could change with a different administration. And then you've got an issue there, you know, between the feds and the, and the state law, so... Yeah, and uh, this is actually non-tax related, but why don't we just quickly mention this? We won't go into it because, like I said, it's non-tax related. But one of the other um, big things here is because of the federal law saying that medical marijuana is a controlled substance, uh, many of these dispensaries can't use the banking system. And so a lot of this is all done in cash. Right. And uh, I guess this does sort of tie into the uh, tax aspect, but it's hard to substantiate a lot of stuff in cash, right? I mean, usually right. when you and I are in tax court and we're substantiating stuff before the IRS, we're using credit card statements, uh, invoices. I mean, I guess you can still have invoices with cash, but, you know, canceled checks or, you know, checks. Um, this all stuff you don't have with cash. Um, right. Can't yeah. use it. You can't use the, fa- you can't use a bank. And so you, you can't, it's a lot harder, you know, essentially right we all take it we take for granted that the those statements and all that type of stuff they kind of do it for us right it's it, it, it they kind of do that job for us in a lot of ways even if you have a very rudimentary type type of business system so yeah you're right i mean if you operate in all cash it's a lot harder and it puts the onus on you to keep records which all of us kind of take for granted we don't have to really you know we, you know it's a lot easier to do that when you're able to use the banking system because you have that backup when you have cash it's either do or you don't and Usually you're more focused on trying to make revenue than you are on making sure everything is, you know, substantiated. Because, you know, you, that's all hindsight, right? In that case, you're always going to just, 
you know, you always think about how important substantiation is if you're before the tax court and you have to, or appeals or whatever, and you have to substantiate an expense, right? But, but other than that, you're just focused on running your business. So if you don't have the bank to statements and all those types of things to, to help you out, it, it becomes a little more difficult. Yeah. Yeah. So Lee, I think that about wraps it up on, um, Olive and Champ and medical marijuana. You have anything else you want to add? No, you know, I think, uh, so, I mean, we're kind of closing out our, our first season, as you call it, uh, I guess you call it. And, um, no, I just, it's been really, it's been really interesting. It's been incredibly fun. It's been incredibly informative. Um, it really has been, uh, a true, a true, uh, you know, learning experience, not, not only from, you know, to, you know, keeping up with this information, but putting it into a form for, 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 for an audience, you know, greater than ourselves that who we don't exactly know who's going to listen to it, but, um, or who's, who's listening, but we hope a lot of people are, and uh, we'd love your feedback, but no, it's been, it's been, a, it's been a great, uh, a great time for me. And I've really enjoyed working with you, Rick. Yeah, it's been fun. Uh, just learning all this stuff and, um, you know, us doing this and even just both of us learning how to podcast, right? I mean, we learn a lot of technical skills here. Um, well, let's be honest. Uh, Rick never learned my email address, um, but the truth is the 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 technical the technical expertise is Rick's. He has handled a lot of this uh, in terms of from the research and the uh, and just the technical application putting this out there. So I just want to thank him because he's done a lot of the heavy lifting on this. I mean, I've I've definitely participated. Uh, to the extent you know that I can and and whatnot, but he has done a hell of a lot of work on this, and um, I just want to commend him because I think he's done a really great job. And so I, I'm talking like you, talking about you like you're not here, but you yeah, are. Yeah, it's like a eulogy. Yeah, no. So hey, great job, man. And but you get all the credit for the technical. All I did was download some of the stuff I had to download, record, and and you kind of did all the uh, all the, the editing and, and getting it ready to go. So thanks for doing that, man. That was I know that was not easy and it was a lot of work. So thanks a lot. Yeah, no problem. I enjoyed it, and um, uh, we're hoping to be back uh, soon in you know a few months or something. But uh, a little bit of a change. Um, I actually got a new job, so I no longer have my own law firm, or I won't soon um, when I start my new job. So I'm actually not sure if I'm going to be able to continue with the U.S. Tax Court podcast, but um, I think Lee definitely is, and I hope that I can also and that we can keep doing this because Lee and I have a lot of fun doing it. Um, But regardless, hopefully um, at least Lee will be back soon with more U.S. Tax Court podcasts. Well, those will be big shoes to fill, and um, I, I do hope that that's not an issue because let's all hope that his new employer will, uh, you know, be okay with him continuing because I know he really wants to, and uh, I know you really want to, and I, I really want to too. So um, hopefully you guys are going to get the benefit of his his abilities too because I think he's shown, if you've listened to this throughout, that he's he's really good at this, uh, and Rick is, you know, does a great job of explaining what's honestly some really technical and difficult stuff to wade through. So uh, let's all hope and cross our fingers that we get the benefit of his talents back. And if not, you're going to be stuck with me, and uh, I'll have to figure out another co-host who I, you know, I don't want to. I don't want to speak now, but um, hopefully they'll be they'll be up to uh, up to the task. I don't know. It's tough. It's hopefully gonna, a lot uh, prettier than your current co-host. <laughs> yeah, well, I've always hoped that you know, but I doubt it. I mean, this. You know, we, we, we do work in tax, right? So it's, yeah. it's uh, you know, we're not we're not uh, GQ models, right? So yeah, well, <laughs> that's why we do radio, Lee. That's right. Faces made for radio. Hey, not even radio, man. <laughs> yeah. Podcasts. Maybe okay. radio one day. Maybe we'll see. Yeah. Um, okay. Um, but anyway, thanks a lot for listening, guys. And um, you can well. You probably won't find out more about me at my website, but you'll definitely find out more about Lee at his website. And just to prove to him that I do know it, it's – shit, I don't know it. Go for it, Lee. It's www.thewilsonfirmplc.com. Yeah, I don't have my post-it notes. Sorry. Yeah, he – I don't think he ever did, guys, so – all right. Well, uh, yeah. So go there if you need to find anything else out about me. And um, but you know, no matter what 
what follows ahead with the Tactical Podcast. I hope it's been informative. I think it, you know, it's something that can obviously be a resource for you guys going forward because, you know, a lot of this stuff, it may change in the future, but there's no doubt, you know, that it builds on itself. And I think, uh, you know, it, it, I think we, you know, put together something that you can really use going forward uh, in your practice, I hope. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks again. Thanks for listening. All right, guys. See ya. Bye.